Our text that we will be in this morning is in Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. And uh, I'm going to read the text and then uh, pray. Um, first, I'd just like to thank everybody who brought Lily and I food um, this last month, I guess, uh, since we had the baby. Much appreciated, uh, huge weight off our shoulders and, and uh, such a great blessing. So um, we are very thankful to God for all of you um, and this, all of you who kept us in prayer and uh, everything. Um, baby's healthy and, uh, and we are adjusting to two and it's, it is, uh, it's definitely quite the experience. So, <clears throat> all right. So thank you very much. Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, reads, There were some present at that very time who told them about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we come to you, Lord, humble especially me, O oh God. Lord, there is no one more undeserving, O oh Lord, to stand in your pulpit, God, and, and proclaim your truth to your people than I. It is such a richly undeserved privilege and I just praise you for it, God. And I stand humbled before you and I pray and ask that your truth would be proclaimed. That, Lord, it not be my words, but your word that goes forth. That it would edify, build up, strengthen, encourage, convict of sin of your people here this morning. May it exalt your Son and bring you glory. Lord, give us focused minds now. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would meet with us here, because God, no matter how eloquent speech I may have or profound a message I have, it will be like speaking to a wall if your Holy Spirit is not at work, O oh God. So I pray, Lord, may your, heart, or may your Holy Spirit open up the hearts and minds of all of those here today. Speak to us, O oh Lord. Reveal yourself to us. Bless this time. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, <clears throat> I am uh, going to be doing something a little bit different uh, th this morning. Um, I actually have visual aid, which we, I don't think we've ever done. Um, but uh, I, I was just going to talk about this video, but I, I'd 
decided I'd rather just show it to you. It'd be easier just to show it to you. So um, I'm going to, hopefully we're going to play a, a quick two-minute video here, um, and then I'll come back up and speak. So uh, let's see if we can get it to work here. Suppose what Oscar believed in as he died, in spite of your protestations, suppose it's all true, mm. and you walk up to the pearly gates and you are confronted by God. What will Stephen Fry say to him, her, or it? I will basically, what's known as the Odyssey, I think, I, I'll say bone cancer in children? What's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? That's what I'd say. And you think you're going to get in no, on that? No, but I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to get in on his terms. They're wrong. Now, if I died and it was, it was Pluto, Hades, and if it was the 12 Greek gods, then I would have more truck with it because the Greeks were they didn't pretend not to be human in their appetites and in their capriciousness and in their unreasonableness. They didn't present themselves as being all-seeing, all-wise, all-kind, all-beneficent. Because the God who created this universe, if it was created by God, is quite clearly a maniac, utter maniac, totally selfish, totally... We have to spend our life on our knees thanking him? What kind of God would do that? Yes, the world is very splendid, but it also has in it insects whose whole life cycle is to burrow into the eyes of children and make them blind. They eat outwards from the eyes. Why? Why did you do that to us? You could easily have made a, a creation in which that didn't exist. It is simply not acceptable. So, you know, atheism is not just about not believing, there is a, is not believing there's a God, but on the assumption that there is one, what kind of God is he? It's perfectly apparent that he is monstrous, utterly monstrous, and deserves no respect whatsoever. The moment you banish him, your life becomes simpler, purer, cleaner, more worth living, in my opinion. That sure is the longest answer to that question <laughs> that I ever got in this entire series. <clears throat> Very bold. On 9-11, the question of the whereabouts of God was on the forefront of all on that tragic day. Questions of evil, tragedies, and suffering have caused doubt in the minds of many. And when you turn on the news, it is, you'll be bombarded with news of tragedies, corruption, terrorism on every level, and in every type and form. And the question goes, if God is all-powerful and allows these things to occur, then he cannot be all-loving. And if he is good and all-loving and these things still occur, then he must not be all-powerful. And let me say that, first and foremost, that this topic has been spoken about by men much more wiser and educated and godly than myself. Um, men who will do, have done a greater job in explaining this than myself. But what sparked this was Facebook. Um, I was on Facebook a few months ago, 
and someone, friend, uh, posted this video. And it was a, it's a two-year-old video. I believe it's about two years old. Um, Stephen Fry is an English actor, comedian, activist, and self-proclaimed atheist. Um, anyways, the, I don't think it showed it on there. The title of that video was God Gets Roasted. And, uh, and my friend on Facebook posted this and said, this makes so much sense. And there was a slew of comments of, of, of supporting um, critics of, of theism that you know, were saying they're supporting comments. And, and as I was going through the comments, I was looking at, at some of the comments that were on there from Christians, and I couldn't help but to shriek a little bit. I don't know it all. I will never proclaim I know it all. I don't have all the right answers. But what I didn't notice is that some of the answers that were given were not scriptural, and I think did more damage than good. And I was kind of blown away. And then I kind of, I made my comment, and then the slew and onslaught of atheists came after me. And so I think I was responding to three or four at a time, you know, texting on my phone as fast as I could. Um, and I noticed that everything I sent out, I kept getting the, the thumbs up from all the Christians and stuff. But no more comments. And I felt like, I'm like, come on, guys, get in here, help me out. Um, you know, but I kept feeling like, uh, it's like, no, you got this. And um, finally, I ended it like I always ended. I, I say, listen, guys, I have ignored my family now for an, over an hour. Um, and uh, I would love to, te- to talk with you further about this. If anyone's interested, I will buy you lunch. We could go out to lunch and we could talk further about this civilized. And like always, uh, it's never, I'm never taking up on that offer. But um, <clears throat> anyways, and it occurred to me that, that um, through that, some of us may not struggle with this question. But others do. And while some of us here may know exactly how to answer these types of questions, others do not. Maybe some in this room struggle and are confronted with this question by someone in your life or are confronted with this question yourself. I know and I will admit that there are times when I'm reading a news report or watching the news and I hear of another ISIS attack that, you know, My anger boils up in me. Families are slaughtered. Mothers are raped while their children are forced to watch. Men are burned alive and children are tortured to death. And like I said, I get get angry and I ask the question, why? As our text reveals to us, this is not that much different in Jesus' time as well. The question of misery, tragedy, loss, pain, death, and evil, though it came from a different viewpoint, was still an issue back then as it is now. And though the perspectives from which the scenarios from which are our texts and the ones as with Stephen Fry differ, it is my goal to show that they both still stem from an incorrect viewpoint that leads us to asking the wrong questions, which I have entitled this title of the sermon. <clears throat> now, before I begin, um, there's, a couple, there's two things I would like to highlight what I will not be doing up here today. 
And I think it's important that I start with this because although I will be approaching this with a, an apologetic defense of the faith um, standpoint, this sermon is not for atheists. This sermon is not for unbelievers. This sermon, like every other sermon should be, is for believers. It is for you if you are in Christ. If uh, there's someone here maybe that God is speaking to, yes, God can use this sermon to unbelievers to change, yes. But this sermon is not for unbelievers, and it is not necessarily for you. And then I hope you are equipped, and I hope you are, you are um, uh, edified through this sermon and are able to give a reason for the faith and hope that lies within you. But it is not ammunition for you to go out and start a Facebook war. It is not ammunition to go um, find that family member that differs in opinion with you and, and start hammering them with these things. This sermon is for the saints. And the other thing that I will not be doing up here today, and I have to stress this, I will not be up here defending God. We sometimes think that we need to come to God's rescue when it comes to these questions, such as, such as today. And we end up undermining his sovereignty more than anything. I'll give you an example. A few years ago, also on Facebook, uh, someone was venting about their life and, and kind of was asking God the question, I don't understand why you've done this. I don't understand, Lord, why, why, why? And I, I looked in the comments and, and there was a believer whom I knew who made the comment, and I'm paraphrasing, I don't remember the exact words, but the comments were somewhere along the lines of, stop blaming God. It is the devil. God has nothing to do with it. <clears throat> and that's how sometimes we treat God when it comes to these questions. We we see Satan going out and, and running amok and, and creating all this mayhem and God's behind him with the dustpan and broom doing the best job that he can. And by doing so, we, uh, we undermine the sovereignty of God. The truth is that God himself does not shy away from this question. When Moses is telling God that he has got the wrong guy to represent him to Israel, because Moses was slow of speech, God responds with, Who has made man's mouth? And who makes him mute or deaf? Or seeing or blind, is it not I, the Lord? Exodus 4.11. In Isaiah 45.7, God speaking of himself says, I form the light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. Some translation says evil there instead of calamity. Um, calamity is a better translation. I am the Lord who does all these things. So God is upfront as to the fact that he is ultimately sovereign over all these things. And while, yes, Satan does bring and is a source of evil, um, God is ultimately sovereign. So, Again, I'm not here to defend God. He does not need me or want me to defend him. I do an injustice to a sovereign nature if I do. So with that said, let us begin diving into our text in Luke 13. I will go with uh, verses 1 and 2 to start off. 
There were those present at that time, at that very time, who told them about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Now, not much other information is given to us throughout history or in the Bible about this scenario. Um, we don't know exactly what played out. Um, and, and the movies sometimes depict Pilate as kind of a um, merciful uh, guy, but he, he actually was pretty cruel, like most Roman officials were. And, uh, <clears throat> yeah, like I said, not much was given, not much other information is given about what happened. But this scenario seems as though people were worshiping with their sacrifices, worshiping most likely in the temples where you did that. And Pilate's men came in and maybe was to, sometimes if there was any kind of Jewish outbreak from the zealots um, to keep the Jewish people in order, they would, they would do such things as this. But in a place where there should be peace, the place where there should be um, no violence at all, the last place that this should happen is in the temple. And these men come in, draw their swords, and slaughter the people, that their blood is, is, is mixed with these sacrifices, which is a, a great defilement. And, uh, and that's all the information we really have about this, about this scenario. <clears throat> now, we live undoubtedly in a world filled with uh, cruelty, where tragedies are, are not foreign to us by any means, and we almost kind of grow a numbness to it when we see it on the news. In the midst of these tragedies are and utter evil acts, God's goodness comes to question. For some, such as Stephen Fry here, such existence of evil in this world nullifies the existence of a good God. But what is interesting is that examining the argument, we can easily see that it is a self-defeating argument from the very start. Let me explain. The atheists, most atheists, believe in natural selection. Basically, that organisms adapt by any means to survive their environment. Another way of saying it is survival of the fittest. When an atheist views injustice and evil deeds in this world, they shouldn't view it with contempt, but willingly embrace it. You see, if I and my family have fallen on hard times and we are unable to eat and provide, and if I'm unable to provide shelter and resources for my family and I, can, and I see someone that does, they have a lot. And say I'm stronger than them and I have the ability and opportunity to take from them that which I need for my survival. Why shouldn't I? From an atheistic standpoint, all I'm doing is ensuring the survival of myself and family by any means necessary. <clears throat> the atheist should not look out, or in that moment, I'm adapting to my environment and ensuring mine and my family's survival. If this is the evolutionary process that brought me and everything into being, why deny it? No atheist looks at 
a tiger or a lion mauling a gazelle and says, man, how rude. Didn't even just, just mauled him and killed him just because he was hungry. And not only that, the lion picked the smallest, the baby. How cruel. But if we are no better, if we were just products of nature, then, then why are we subject to any difference? The atheist should not look out into the world full of corruption and murder for self-gain and injustice and say no. They should look at it with an ex- a resounding yes. From an atheistic standpoint, there is no such thing as injustice or evil or right and wrong. It is simply what it is, nature. One can only conclude the existence of evil by comparing it to a higher level of good, and that ain't us, people. One can only conclude that something is wrong by having some higher standard of right in which to compare it to. There's a quote by C.S. Lewis. I think we have it on the screen there. He says, As an atheist, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? And man does not call a line crooked unless he had some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with? when I called it unjust. According to C.S. Lewis, it's like saying, saying I don't believe in God because there's so much, I don't believe in a good God because there's so much evil in this world. It's like saying, I don't believe in straight lines because all I see is crooked lines. The only reason you know a line is crooked is because you first witnessed or you've experienced with a straight line. It is a self-defeating argument in the very, very, very start. The problem in this world is that we have replaced God with being that higher level of good with ourselves. Now, how does this apply to our text? Those posting this question were most likely not atheists, but in fact were most likely pious, practicing, monotheistic Jews that had not only belief in God, but a reverence toward him as well. But what does this theistic Jews and today's atheists have in common when we view the text? when we view this exact same scenario. It is what my first point is, a misconstrued, incorrect viewpoint of man's innocence, which leads us to asking the wrong questions. You see, at this time, the mindset of a first-century Jew was that any type of calamity, any type of suffering, any type of bad experiences that you went through was a direct result of some hidden, unrepented, unconfessed sin in your life. It was like the whole nation of Israel skipped out on Sunday school when they taught Job. They missed out on Job Day. And we see that in the story of Job, right? Job is sitting there suffering. He's lost so much. And his friends tell him, you need to repent. He's like, I got nothing to repent of. I, didn't, I haven't done anything. There's no hidden sin that I'm not confessed and repented of. And they said, there's got to be something, Job. Look at you. There's something there. And we see that this was the mindset of, of the Jews back in Jesus' ministry. Um, John 9, 1 through 2. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not this man that sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Ah, 
These men inquiring of the slaughter of these Galileans were not informing Jesus in order to get his view on it. They already made their conclusion. They were inquiring of Jesus in hopes that he would affirm their misconstrued mindset. We see that on how Jesus responds to them. He doesn't answer their question, right? They want his opinion. Jesus, tell us what you think about these, uh, the Galileans that were slaughtered by Pilate. That's an unconfessed sin, right? Unrepentant sin. They were, they were evil. He doesn't answer the question. He just simply says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Knowing their hearts and reason behind the inquiry, Jesus directs his attention not to their question, but their motive behind the question. As I said before, they didn't want Jesus' viewpoint on that scenario, but wanted him to affirm theirs. And how common is that for us Christians when we approach the word of God? It is easy, especially as new believers, to approach the word of God with a mindset and a viewpoint that we will, are unwilling to back down from. So we approach the, the word of God with a, with a closed mind and a set, um, set of beliefs that is formed more, more, more so by the world than God. <clears throat> and we, we misinterpret and twist scripture so that it means and, and affirms our own belief. These Jewish people wanted Jesus to tell them that which they had. Um, I'm sorry. These Jewish people wanted Jesus to tell them that they had nothing to worry about. Now, we do this today. You see, the Jewish people wanted Jesus to say, "You have nothing to worry about." They were these rotten sinners. They weren't like you. Now, we do this today, and let me, I will be bold enough to admit this, and hopefully we can be honest with ourselves so that I don't look like the only monster in here. Um, someone comes to me and says, did you hear about so-and-so? No. What? They have cancer. Oh, wait a minute. So-and-so's 33 years old. That's my age, which is super, super, super young. What's the next question out of my mouth to this person? Anybody? It's their lifestyle. Exactly. Well, were they smokers? Yeah, they were, they were heavy smokers and drinkers and partiers and drugs. Like, ugh. okay, well, I'll be praying for them. I don't have to worry about that. That shouldn't happen to me. I mean, they kind of asked for it. Now, don't get me wrong. The only, I'm not saying that the only time and only reason that we inquire these things is not because we are curious, because that is a young age to develop some kind of you know, cancer or something like that. But... We do this, do we not? We think to ourselves, man, that's my age. They got diabetes? What, what the heck? That, that, they're my age. They look, you know, but what happens when they tell you, no, actually, so-and-so is 
never smoked anything in their life, never drink a drop, never, you know, very healthy eater, dieted, exercise, was fit. Well, in my sinful state, I say, well, that's why I don't do those things. That's why I don't exercise in, all the time. You don't want to be too healthy. Um, no, when that happens, we go, oh, well, that means that could happen. That could be me. So-and-so is only this. That, that could be me then. And in the same way, the, these, these Jewish people were asking Jesus, hey, just affirm our already, what we already know, but just affirm for us, Jesus, these men, these, these, these worshipers that were slaughtered by Pilate, this, this terrible tragedy that happened, there was some unrepented sin there, right? There was something there. There were, you know, God picked these people out of, out of Galilee who were un, unrepentant sinners, sinful people who had hidden sin, and he brought them all together in, that, in the temple and then, then brought Pilate's men and slaughtered them all, right? That's what happened, right, Jesus? Jesus, uh, Jesus turns that notion on his head. Now, how do, does the atheists of today relate to these theistic Jews of then when looking at this exact same scenario? Well, I've already said it's a, it's a false ideology of the innocence of man. The world has a high view and opinion of man. The world thinks of man as naturally and inherently good. We can, we can better get along if we just look past our differences reach deep down inside of the good that is in us all. Now, don't get me wrong, man can do unselfish deeds without knowing Christ. We are still made in the image of God. We, we still feel compassion. We still, have, still feel pain for others um, that move us to acts of kindness. But even that still stems from a sense of self-centeredness of feeling good about these things. Now, the atheists will look at this scenario and they will say they were just all innocent people. They're worshiping God, minding their own business, and they were slaughtered. No good God would allow this. The Jewish people at this time looked at the scenario and said, these people were not innocent like the rest of us. And that's why this judgment fell upon them, because no good God would allow this to happen to innocent people. This wrong mindset of man's innocence has led us from reasoning evil because of an absence, or reasoning evil as an absence of God's favor to an absence of God himself. Jesus tells them that those that, bef- that befell the tragedy were no more sinful than all the other Galileans. Do you think that if you were there, the scenario would have been different? They did, actually. Jesus is telling them that um, they were no more sinful than all of you here. Jesus is telling them that you think that the outcome would have been different if you were there. A good, all-powerful God, you see, the atheist, I'm sorry, a good, all-powerful God would not let such calamities befall innocent people, though. That's what the Jewish mindset was at this time. That's what an atheistic mindset is at this time. A good God would not allow innocent people to suffer. 
to die the way that we see it out there in the world, the tragedies out there. And I would say they are absolutely 100% correct. The problem is, and what they don't realize, is that there are no innocent people. Romans 3, 11 through 12, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Skip to verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Even that cute baby in my wife's arms is 10 pounds of sinful flesh, that is unable to manifest itself yet. This was a shock to first century Jews as it is a shock to most people today. Because we have, we have developed this self-entitled safety that we should have if the God of, Bi- of the Bible exists. And now that Jesus turns it on his head and says no one is innocent, this self-entitled safety that we should have if God exists is now gone. Which now leads me to my second point. Verses um, three, 3 to 5. Now I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. For those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And it's interesting that Jesus does not wait for someone to bring up this other tragedy. And it's almost like what Jesus is doing is, is just kind of laying it all out. Because there's two types of tragedies, right? There's, there's the natural, accidental tragedies that happen. Car accidents, um, uh, tsunamis, things such as that. And then there's the tragedies that are brought in by man. that are inflicted by man. And... Uh, Jesus encompasses it all together. Uh, Jesus does not sugarcoat it, nor does he even ever sit down and try to explain the reasoning behind these tragedies. He doesn't sit these Jewish people down and say, listen, this is what God was doing. I know it's upsetting, but the purpose behind it is this, and this is what's going on. He doesn't do it. He doesn't try to explain and reason behind these tragedies. And, you know, it kind of reminds me when, when Job is finally at the end of his rope and he starts complaining and starts demanding God to answer him. And what happens when, jo- when God shows up? He just starts asking him the questions. He says, well, you want to call me into question, Job? Where were you when I set the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I, when I told the waters they can go this far and no further? Who are you? He simply expounds upon the natural conclusion of his first statement. These people, as well as people today, have a misconstrued idea of the innocence of man, which leads them to my next point, a misconstrued, inaccurate view of the obligation of God to man. As we have seen and concluded, there are no good and innocent people. Being so, there is no obligation God has to man to be merciful and keep evil at bay. Um, and nowhere in Scripture does God say that. Stephen Fry, in this video, and, and others like him, have a mindset of man that goes that God owes us. He is a safety, health, comfortability, and tomorrow. 
Stephen Fry also spoke of horrible things that, aren't, that are in this world, like insects that cause children to go blind and made the comment, you could have easily created a world in which that did not exist. And my response to that is simply, he did. Um, now, we all know the story, but um, let's take a, take a look at the finale of the creation account in Genesis. In Genesis 1.31, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So what happened? Genesis 2.16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... You shall not eat, for in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. We all know what happened. Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that there was a, the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, we know that God cannot lie what he says he must do. So when we look at God's obligation to man, we see, according to the last couple of verses in Genesis, God is obligated to himself to do that which he says, and according to Genesis 2.16, the only obligation that God has to man is death. We know that along with Adam and Eve, the earth was cursed as well. So whenever I hear someone criticizing God because of an evil and bad things in this world, I simply and sarcastically say, if only God created the world perfect. Now, could God have created and sustained a world in which sin, and along with it, pain, suffering, and death did not exist? Yes, absolutely. I've discussed this with the youth a few times. Let me ask, how many of you here have children? Raise of hands. How many have children? Okay. <clears throat> how many love you children? Actually, you probably shouldn't raise your hands just in case there's not the same amount that come up. <laughs> but let us, for argument's sake, say that you do love and care for your children, no matter what age they are. Now, as a parent, one of the hardest things, is it not, no matter what age you are, one of the hardest things as a parent is to see your child in pain. Is that not true? Whether it's physical pain, whether it's emotional pain, whatever it be, when you see your child in pain, it is tough. You want to take that pain away from them. You want to, even if you could put it on yourself, you, you do not like to see your children in pain. What if I told you, that there was a way for you to keep your child ever from experiencing pain, suffering, the possibility of, of being kidnapped or killed, hurt emotionally, brokenhearted. And what if I told you that it was accessible for you to do this all along, and that because you guys have not done it, you guys are terrible parents? You see... If you were to take your child at a young age, when they were self-sustainable, and padded their room, 
and took everything out of that room that could cause them harm. And then you bolt that door shut. You create a little slot there where you can bring them meals. And you make them do some exercises so they keep healthy, right? You never have to worry about them falling and scraping their knee. You never have to worry about them being kidnapped. You never have to worry about them getting sick. You never have to worry about them getting hit by a car, being heartbroken. You keep them in that room. Now you're good parents. Now, by doing so, what do we rob the child of? We rob them of their free will. Could God have created a world in which there was no option for sin, death, and sickness to be available? Yes, absolutely. All he had to do was not create that or not allow accessibility to that tree for Adam and Eve. But what does he do? By doing so, he robs us of free will. And we are, have no other opportunity or no other choice but to worship him. One of the most powerful gifts that God has ever bestowed upon us is the gift of free will. Ravi Zacharias is a famous apologist, and I just actually watched this last night, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I, that's, that's perfect. And you know, forgive me for not knowing exactly how he worded it, but someone asked him about kind of this, and you know, about someone being killed and, and by, gun, by being shot, and, and why didn't God stop that trigger? And he says, you do not realize what you're asking when you ask God to stop that trigger being pulled. You see, God has given every one of us choice. Now he has given us a choice and free will to love God with all of our hearts, mind, and soul and love our neighbors as ourselves. And he's also given us a choice to hate God and hate our neighbors. The choice is there on both ends. He says you do not realize what you are asking for when you ask God to stop that trigger from being pulled. You are asking God to intervene and take from us our free will and you don't even realize it. I thought that was perfect. I was like, oh my gosh, you know. So true. And, and we do. You say, we want you to intervene here. Have your sovereignty here, but not over here. Not here. <clears throat> Jesus makes clear here that we are not innocent creatures and God is not obligated to give us anything but the death that we so willingly chose. And if we do not repent, then the same fate awaits us. Now, Jesus is not saying that a tower is going to fall on you and kill you, though it did on many on 9-11. Or some men are not going to come in here on Sunday morning and start shooting and killing you although it did happen to nine people almost two years ago in Charleston, South Carolina. What he is saying is that tomorrow is not promised to us, and death will come unexpectedly. For them and for us, 
And at that moment, there will be no time left to repent. Another quote I have uh, from R.C. Sproul says, When anything painful, sorrowful, or grievous befalls us, it is never an act of injustice. On God, it's never an act of injustice on God's part because God does not owe us freedom from tragedies. He does not owe us protection from falling towers. We are debtors to God and cannot repay. Our only hope to avoid perishing at the hands of God is repentance. My third point is asking the right questions. What have we seen with the first two points? That man is not innocent but sinful. And God is not obligated to be merciful to us. What our Lord's response does here is not give answers to the wrong questions we ask, but have us start asking the right questions. In light of man's sinfulness, when we hear of tragedies, when we hear of calamities, when we hear of turmoil, rather than asking why they occur, we should be asking ourselves, why don't they occur more often? In light of God's holiness and our sinfulness and disobedience, we should not be asking why tragedies, but why not more tragedies? When we hear of others suffering and pain, we should not go to God and ask why, but take a look at our own sinfulness and ask why not me? We should not be asking why is there so much death, tragedies, but why are we given life at all? The sad fact is that every person on this earth, whether they are a believer or not, at this very moment, are experiencing God's grace, what theologians refer to as God's common grace, and is given to every single human being on the planet at this very moment. And the fact is, we get used to that. And like most things we grow numb to, we want something more, and think more is owed to us. Man has developed this self-entitlement when it comes to God's grace, and the moment they see a lack of it, in any shape or form, they raise their fists in the air and curse God, I don't know if the youth recall going through our two-year study of Revelation, but we realize, or we see in Revelation, especially in, in chapter 16, that all the judgment that God is bringing onto man in the future, judgment that should lead them to repentance on their knees, actually does the exact opposite. You read things like, they curse God, and curse God of heaven, and they curse the name of God. The evils and tragedy and turmoil of this world should lead man to his knees in repentance to God, but instead leads them to shun him, curse him, and say that because of them, he doesn't exist. Jesus says something twice here. In these five verses, and in Jesus' two response, he says something twice. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And I started thinking about that. <clears throat> repent of what? Well, to these Jewish people, repent of this mindset that they had. But sin. Sin is the issue. And repentance would be worthless if Jesus does not come to the cross. Jesus does not come to the cross and rise again Repentance is hopeless and pointless, and we are without hope. We would not go far. 
So the question is, why is repentance even offered to us in the first place? Repentance is offered because of the one speaking in our text. Jesus is saying that sin is a real issue, and repentance is the answer, and the possibility for repentance is what he was there to secure for us by going to the cross. Let me give you one last scenario here. Say one of our sons, when I was writing this, I was going to put one of our sons' name down, but I was like, I couldn't, I was like, I couldn't put one of our sons' name down, so I just said, one of our sons, say, develops a cough. Over time and over the days, and for those in the medical field, forgive me, I did not do my research, so just bear with me. Um, but he develops a cough. He begins, uh, be- begins to feel some pain, unexplained pain, becomes very fatigued and lethargic. So we take him to the doctors, naturally, take him to the hospital. The doctor walks in after running some tests and says, I'm sorry to inform you, your son has cancer. But the good news is there's a new treatment that is, is going to be teamed up with chemotherapy that will, that will help treat this cancer. And we say, okay. Days go by. Our son's hair falls off. He becomes more weak, and his cough continues, and he grows in severity. Months go by, and the doctor comes in and says, I have great news. The cancer, looks like the cancer cells are dying off, the, the tumor is getting smaller, and I say, enough. I'm done listening to you. Because since we've come here, All you've talked about is the cancer. You have done nothing for his cough. You, your nurses, the hospital, have done nothing for his cough. And he's still weak. In fact, he's become weaker. His hair is falling out. His color and his face is gone. I'm done listening to you. I don't see this cancer that you're talking about, but I can see the cough. I can hear the cough. I can see his weakness. I can see the color leaving him. I'm done with doctors. I'm done with medicine. And I'm done with the hospital. We take our son home. And I come back to the doctor and I say, my son died. And How dare you? Doctor says, you took him away. I said, because he wasn't even better. He still has a cough. And doctor says, I I mean, how many of you guys, that's a crazy scenario, right? Doctor said, I wasn't worried about the cough. I didn't care about the cough. The cough was just a byproduct of the cancer that was in him. That's what I was going for. That was the issue. Not the cough, not the weakness. And yes, things were going to get worse before they got better. But I was treating the cancer. That was the problem. We come to Jesus, the atheist, 
the world comes to Jesus and say, look at the world, why don't you do something? And he says, I did! Jesus is saying, those are all just byproducts. The real issue is sin. I dealt sin a death blow on the cross. That's why I'm here. That's why I've come to conquer. I don't know exactly what would transpire in our judgment, but Stephen Fry speculated what he would say, so allow me to speculate what I think will happen. I imagine that God would show Stephen Fry this perfect world that he created and this perfect creation that he created. I imagine that he would show him the, the free gift that he gave humanity to disobey, reject, and rebel against him. I imagine that he would show Stephen Fry that man who represented all of us chose that and chose this world that we live in today. I imagine that he would show man continually raising their fists at God, rejecting God, and bowing down to images. I imagine that he would show Stephen Fry man at his darkest and most hopeless hour and then show Christ coming in, coming into the picture, taking on the flesh of his own creation. I imagine that he would show him the cross in which the Savior took upon himself the sin, shame, death, and wrath of God that we so richly deserve so that we may be reconciled to the God that we rejected. I imagine he would show him the resurrection. I imagine he would show Stephen Fry every time that this good news was presented to him, and he scoffed and laughed at it, and then mocked it. And I imagine... And he would look at him as he melted in terror before a holy God and said, how dare I? How dare you? There will be a time when all will be made right. There will be a time when wicked, sinful deeds will be punished. There will come a time when all of this is made right. Every tear of those that belong to Christ will be wiped away. And there will be no more sorrow and no more death. And oh, how should we long for that day? In closing, I'm not sure how this maybe applies to some of you. Hopefully God has, grant, uh, has been speaking to you throughout this sermon. Perhaps you were edified through it. Perhaps you were built up, encouraged. Perhaps there's some of you who have the mindset of first century Jews, and if I ask you why you think that you would be in God's presence in heaven when you die, and the first thing word that comes out of your mouth is, well, I you need to self-evaluate. Because it's not about I. It's about Him. 
And maybe some of you here are seasoned believers and, already, and I didn't really tell you anything you didn't already know. My only exhortation to you is let us be weary of falling to the trap of numbness of God's grace. Let us consider our own sinfulness and unworthiness and be humbled at this time as we ponder the right question of why did God give grace at all, especially to me? Let that question deepen our adoration of God. Let it deepen our worship and love for Him. And as we transition to communion, let us remember this. The cries of this question the mockery of the goodness of God to someone, the words of look around you, where's your good God now, echoed no louder than at the cross where Jesus hung. The only time in history that a true innocence was unjustly punished. But praise God, he volunteered.